You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. This episode's guest is Denny Brennan, Executive Director and CEO of the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium. Denny speaks with the Dish on Health IT's hosts, Pooja Barbara and Jocelyn Keegan, about prior authorization and other incremental ways stakeholders can reduce burden and improve patient care. This episode also explores the risk of inaction while waiting for new rules versus taking on interoperability projects prior to a final rule being issued. We hope you find today's episode informative and helpful. If you have topic ideas you'd like us to cover in future episodes, be sure to share them with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com or tweeting us at POCPHIT. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dish on Health IT, where we invite health IT leaders and trailblazers to break down and discuss some of health IT's biggest news and most exciting milestones. We at Point of Care Partners are health IT consultants who work with stakeholders across the healthcare ecosystem and are viewed as an independent trusted party like Switzerland. So I'm Pooja Barbara, Senior Consultant and Payer and PBM Lead here at Point of Care Partners, and I'll be your host for this episode, filling in for Ken Kleinberg, who's actually out on an extended grand adventure. And of course, we're not bitter, but because today my colleague and co-host Jocelyn Keegan and I are really excited to welcome our old friend and guest, Denny Brennan, Executive Director and CEO of the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium. We're going to be talking about prior auth, reducing burden, and why and if working ahead of any federal rules isn't as risky as you might think. But before we jump into our discussion with Denny, I'd like to have Jocelyn actually introduce herself and tell us what she's looking forward to learning from today's guest. Joss? Hey, Pooja. Thanks. And I'm super excited for us to be able to um, stack the deck for the people we like while Ken's out on vacation. So I'm super excited. You know, I'm, I'm a senior consultant here and payer practice lead at Point of Care Partners and also the program manager at DaVinci. And as part of my work there, I have literally done hundreds of hours of educating and evangelizing out in the industry about the work that is happening sort of within the HL from the fire community. And while we were trying to figure out how to get mass plans involved in the work that's happening in industry, John Kelly, now retired from EdFX, said to me, you have got to meet Denny Brennan. He literally knows everyone in mass. Um, I've since gotten to know Denny and the MHTC team over the last four years. Um, they're super smart focused industry veterans, um, filled with what I always like, which is a lot of pragmatism about how we get things done and get stuff done attitude. I think I'll leave it to Denny to describe sort of, I think this little jewel that MHDC brings to the table for Massachusetts, but I'm excited to talk about really the hard decisions and actions that orgs really need to do to bring this stuff to reality. Um, because at the end of the day, we're really trying to figure out how to fix healthcare, right? And improve actual patient outcomes. And um, I think that I'd like to think of today's conversation in a couple of ways, right? Which is, you know, it's up to us to make the change in the world that we want to see happen, happen. Only you can actually present, you know, pre um, prevent sort of the additional delay or ongoing, when are we going to do it sort of mentality, I think, that we live with here in healthcare. 
Great. Thanks, Jocelyn. Denny, I do have to say, I think you have a couple of your uh, fan club members in Jocelyn and I. So, uh, so, I'm delighted. Uh, I have to say I'm delighted. <laughs> so let's do greet you. Um, so as I mentioned, Denny Brennan, Executive Director and CEO of the Massachusetts Health Data Consortium, or MHDC. Can you go ahead and introduce yourself and um, include how you came to work with MHDC? Sure. Thank you, Poojan. Thank you, Joss. I appreciate the introduction. It's great to work with friends who are colleagues at the same time. My name is Denny Brennan. I'm the executive director of MHDC. I joined MHDC 10 years ago after spending uh, the prior 20 years roughly evenly divided between consulting and technology services as, as an executive in both. I came to MHDC not realizing I was joining a jewel of an organization. And as Jocelyn, you have described small but mighty, but we have been able to build on the enormous goodwill that MHDC has over 45 years. We've been around since 1978. So we're going on 45 years and getting to know everybody in Massachusetts would have been an extraordinarily difficult thing if I didn't have a company like MHDC to, to work from. So I'm delighted to be here and share what, what we're doing. Great. Excellent. So before we transition over to our actual topics, can you tell us a little bit more about the organization, like the mission and vision? Sure. As I mentioned, we've been around for a long time. We introduced our membership, which is comprised of everyone in the health data community in Massachusetts, some regionally and some nationally. But we have a really center of gravity in the state or the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And we came about because the state, the health plans and the providers wanted to have an organization that was unbiased, that was focused on health data, less on technology, though, as we know now, technology and data are so intertwined that we end up moving between them more effortlessly today than we used to. The mission of MHDC is to create a patient-centered health data system that enables the kinds of cost reductions, burden reductions, improvements in quality of care, enhancements in the patient experience, improvements in equity and access that are not possible when enterprises try to do this on their own. So our motto is, you know, we start small, we start at the individual, and we work from there. And we do that in, you know, in four different ways. One is we, we assist our payer and provider members in understanding data governance in this new world. What does it mean to comply with regulations? What does it mean? What is FIRE? We'll talk about that more. And to those who are listening, that's F-H-I-R, not the combustible variety, though sometimes it feels like they're indistinguishable. But, you know, what does it mean to move to a, a world where, you know, patients are banishing their health data from the device and, and are connected to any and all of the services that help them achieve health. We do that in four ways. As I mentioned, we have governance to start it out to help people understand what's coming, why, what happens if we don't do it, what happens if we do. We have exchange services that operate to provide payers and providers a mean to share data with each other. But also we use that exchange service which is called Nihen and headed up by my colleague, Dave Delano. We use that exchange service as a launch pad for, or a test kitchen, if you will, for doing things that are, that are more modern, such as how do we automate real-time, you know, how do we make real-time prior authorization a reality? How do, how do we go about doing that? How do we change the patient and the physician clinician's experience 
of what is now an arduous process. We also do analytics. We have an analytics service called Spotlight that we provide to organizations. It's a web-hosted service. It's easily accessible. And lastly, we are increasingly called in to support consulting efforts based on the experience we've developed, the reputation we've developed. It's early in the game, but we're seeing more interest from people who are saying, all this stuff is very exciting. Help us figure out how to do it. But that's really who we are. That's great. I am, you know, I love this idea of this, uh, you know, this test kitchen role. Um, I'd love if you expand a little bit more on that. It seems like, you know, that your role there um, and why your location in, in Massachusetts is so important. You know, uh, obviously, Jocelyn's very involved on, in, in DaVinci. Uh, you know, we see a lot of the testing lately has, has been focused on kind of the DaVinci implementation guides specifically related to prior auth. You mentioned prior auth. So can you talk a little bit more about that test kitchen role and, and why, uh, why so much focus on prior authorization for you guys? Great questions, Pooja. Thanks. The test kitchen concept is a reflection of sort of a personal bias of mine, but also I think the way that MHDC has worked for a long time, which is, you know, over the last 30 plus years working in healthcare, healthcare is an industry that is governed in many respects by followership. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to be the first to fall off the pier and land on their heads, if you will. Uh, They want to see other organizations do that, do it successfully. And then you can see a tidal shift, you know, a very substantial move among a number of other industry participants to do something once they've seen somebody else take the first steps. So that experience, plus the recognition that you don't know everything when you start out, you don't know how you're going to end The only thing you really know when you start out is you're going to end up in a very different place than you think you are when you commence a project. So rather than ready, aim, and fire, we're kind of aim, fire, get ready again, aim, fire, get ready again. And it's this iterative process of we we only learn when we take a stab at something, when we take a shot at something, to keep my metaphors consistent. You know, we only learn when we try. And we don't have to try to, to, you know, eat the entire elephant. We just have to take a bite. We have to figure out, you know, what we've learned from that and then move forward. So, you know, the idea of a test kitchen is really rather than sit down and try to figure everything out in advance, let's go with what we know. Let's bound our risk so that we're not basing major business operations on it, but let's see how this thing works. The other thing that is important about the test kitchen process and our approach, Pooja, to prior authorization specifically is that everybody hates prior auth. Prior auth is enormously complex. It involves patients. It involves physicians, especially. It involves health insurance plans and Everyone would like to do it better, but everyone has a different idea about how to do it better. And those ideas often reflect where they come from. Our approach is that this is a business process that, if automated, will enable organizations to automate other things that are far less complex. You know, we talk about surprise billing and how how does the industry manage itself to avoid foisting surprise bills on patients. Well, that's another enormously complicated thing. But if we do prior auth, we're going to really take a big chunk out of what goes into surprise billing. We also learn a lot more about what works uh, in the sense that if we focus on prior auth and we take this, you know, one bite at a time, shoot, aim, ready, we, we end up getting to a point where we're actually able to set baselines so that we can measure what kind of interventions 
people are talking today about doing things to solve prior auth. You know, gold card physicians eliminate prior auth for certain classes of diseases or conditions or procedures or medications. But we know from history that those don't work. The industry is changing too much. But we do know that if you go about and set in place an automation process, you can start creating baselines and you can experiment with these things and know, well, that really does work. But if we're going to manage it over the long term, we need to keep an eye on it. And if you don't have that automation process in place, you can't keep an eye on it. So I would say just in closing, we like kind of getting started rather than waiting. Number one, we want to bound our risk. The risk of waiting has comes with much greater failure than the risk of not waiting. As long as you're, you know, you're conscientious about the scope of what you do. Thirdly, if we can slay this dragon, we can slay a lot of others. And this is one that has a tremendous amount of political impetus behind it. Mm -hmm. People want it to change. So, you know, we're able to bring a lot of people together. And I should underscore that we do things in collaboration. That's, you know, we're a consortium and we're not a company. We're a very small company, but we're a big consortium. So we work through our members and we bring them into the room. And these are organizations that compete with each other. They contract with each other. They're used to sitting on the opposite sides of the table. So if we can bring them in the same room and say, none of this is proprietary. This is infrastructure. Let's fix it. We learn from them what their issues are, what their fears are, what their concerns are, and we can start addressing those right up front. So that's kind of our approach. That's great. And I think it's a great model for the industry of what you, you know, what you guys have built up there. So I know in our prep for this podcast, you talked a little bit about this automation advisory group. Can you share a little bit more about kind of that group, um, you know, how mature it is? Um, are you still recruiting members? And, you know, are there any kind of reports or anything that our uh, listeners could review uh, that comes out of this advisory group? Sure. The automation advisory group, or TAG as we call it, and I'm not a marketer, so somebody else came up with that. So I claim no responsibility for it. I like the name, but I have to give credit where credit is due. The automation advisory group is one side of a two-sided coin that we're using for prior auth. The other side is prototyping a real prior authorization implementation in an automated, compliant industry standardized way so it can be replicated and scaled across multiple payers and providers. But we're starting with one payer and one provider, one technology company, and we're saying, let's take a bite out of the first piece of prior auth and let's stick to the rules, stick to the standards, and let's learn from that. So one side of the coin is what I would call the prototype, get deep, but stay narrow, stay small, but get deep into prior auth between trading partners. The second side that you referenced, Pooja, is TAG, or the Automation Advisor Group. And this is a group of about 40, approaching 50 individuals that we have assembled to meet over the course of the next year, and it may be over the course of the next two years. Our goal is to convene, which is one of MHDC's strong suits. That's what we really stand for, is the ability to bring together a coalition, a consortium of, of representatives from across the industry in Massachusetts and nationally to tackle problems together. So that's kind of our, our, you know, our modus operandi, if you will. And what we do with TAG is we have payers, almost all the payers in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, some of which have regional 
stretch. We're having some interest expressed by some national payers to be involved because many of them do business in Massachusetts. And as we know from recent proposed legislation, people are going to have to do Medicare Advantage, which is what a lot of national plans do in different states. They're going to have to do it the same way. They're going to have to get good at prior auth. So we have payers, we have providers, hospitals, medical groups, individual physician practices. The burden of prior auth on physicians and other caregivers is especially acute for smaller practices and medical groups. But hospitals have the same challenge. So we've got representative hospitals, medical groups, individual practices. We also have government. We have the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the table, or CMS, responsible for Medicare. We have the Office of the National Coordinator, or ONC, which is really responsible for the provider side of the technology data that go into making prior auth and other business processes work. They're at the table. We have Massachusetts Executive Office of Health and Human Services, as well as our Health Policy Commission, which is responsible for managing cost and the quality of health care across the state. So lastly, we have a bunch of vendors, technology services companies, who have agreed to participate and have contributed funding for this. This is also funded by the Health Policy Commission. We're doing this in partnership with an organization called the Network for Excellence in Health Innovation, or NEHI. So they bring the policy relationships. They bring some of the national relationships that we need. We bring what we've already described as the MHDC sort of set of tools and set of you know ideas and preferences and ways of going about things. And we're our goal is to take the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and automate prior authorization statewide in two years. And we're going to do that legislatively. We brought the regulators there because we said, we're going to give you everything you need, all the conditions that need to be fulfilled for you to make this law. Now, law is not just a stick. It's a carrot. You know, there are implementation and technical assistance grants that we're talking about. Part of what we need to figure out is how much does this thing cost and how much burden will be borne by smaller practices? How much will electronic medical records vendors do? They're sitting at the table. How much is going to be done on the health plan side to get ready for this? But if we don't bring all those people into the room and say, we're going to make prior authorization the law of the Commonwealth in two years, and we're going to start figuring out how to do that, as we've talked about before, where it's easier rather than where it's harder. We have a lot of members in that group who say, let's do drugs. Let's do imaging. And we're like, we want to get there, but that's a little more complicated than doing PTOT or doing, you know, bite bariatric surgery. You know, we want to start small. We want to start kind of in-house, pair to provider, easy, relatively straightforward medical necessity criteria so we can clean out the noise. A lot of prior auths are denied because there's inadequate documentation, in, insufficient coding. Let's figure out how to take all that noise out first before we start tackling the ones that are really complicated. So TAG is, you know, our effort with NEHI to make prior auth the law of the land in two years' time. That's fantastic. What a great goal. And I'm, I'm sure Jocelyn is probably where I'm at that, you know, you put, you put these standards and transactions out there, right? And to actually see folks picking things up and, and actually implementing is fantastic. So, Joss, I would love your kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, take on this, is, especially as your program manager role in DaVinci. You know, what's your reaction to what MHJC and, and is doing as Denny described it? 
Right. So I don't think that we can have better implementers out there um, from a market perspective. You know, we've got our little pockets of early organizations that have sort of done this on their own and created informal groups. But, you know, Denny's providing really a test bed, right, for this to really be picked up and used. And I and I think that, you know, we're we're all, you know, sort of thinking about this from a product perspective and a technology perspective frequently. But I think what we're really getting across and I think that what they're able to do with the the joint venture with the Nehi team and TAG and MHDC is this idea of, you know, really looking at the business process changes that need to happen and the decisions, the hard decisions about what happens when you sort of pick up some of this technology and actually apply it for real. I, I think that this is really important. I think we're at a sea change, right? Where people are saying standards have a role. Um, Denny and, and Dave Delano, his um, partner over on the, the uh, MHDC side on this project, uh, really are doing a fantastic job of really pushing you know, the community to pick up and leverage the standards where possible. Uh, you know, we couldn't ask for more than that, I think, as a community, right, where people really are willing to go first. I think that when we when we look at this and we look at, you know, the investment that you need to make these kind of changes happen, you know, you're hearing really, I think, what we preach, POCP, and I think the work that we do with our playbooks and DaVinci, this idea that it's really, this is about a community shift. This is about changing business process and business workflows and that this is a people investment, right? This isn't just a technology investment and really understanding what it's going to take to get people from the way they do things today to this new world where we're giving, you know, I would say information equity to providers and to patients, you know, about their coverage and about, you know, what's needed in order for them to get the services they need to get paid for, right? At the end of the day. So, you know, sort of this, impact of, you know, real world adoption, case by case, incremental is so fundamentally important. Um, I did kind of giggle in my head as Denny was talking about assembling people. I'm like, oh, they're like our own Massachusetts Avengers that we've created, right? That are going to be first at the table to do this. Thanks, guys. But I, but I think that, you know, the standards aren't going to be perfect, right? You know, Dave Delano and I have some funny conversations about sort of what's there already and sort of what are they seeing, you know, as they try and figure out all the different places in workflow, you're going to need to surface these APIs. And I think that real day-to-day -day operational experience of trying to solve different areas of care, right, in automation is the hard work that we need to do at the end of the day. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just thankful that these guys are here and that they're willing to be forward first. Um, I'd love to have nine or 10 more MHDCs across the country doing this work because to Denny's point, we have to get there. Let's get started. And I think that, you know, the, the people that are going to get started are going to be able to drive where this heads and how it's going to work long term. And people who strategically understand that easing this pain is going to be a strategic advantage for them, you know, as the industry continues to undergo rapid change um, and expansion you know, th these are building blocks. This isn't solving the problem with technology. This is putting the technology in place so we can solve the problem. Great. Thanks, Joss. So, you know, one thing I, I'm kind of picking up on, Denny, is, is you guys seem to be charging forward, right, to make progress in automating prior authorization and reducing burden. And I know, you know, through some of the work that we do as point of care partners, what we found is as soon as the, you know, the, the federal rule was pulled back, you know, people took a pause, right? And they're kind of like, well, we're just waiting for the next rule to come out. So I'm just curious, you know, are you, do you think it's risky to kind of move forward the way you guys are moving forward before we have an expected rule on prior off and burden reduction? I think there is always a risk at being up out, out in front. 
but the risks are bounded by the fact that you stub your toe in a, in a relatively circumscribed implementation and you move on. The downside risk of not moving forward is you don't know what you don't know. And when you do get started, you realize, oh, my God, the lead time requirements for this are a year. The technology infrastructure that I need to put in place is going to require that I hire all sorts of new people. You know, thirdly, you know, we see in the market, we have seen in the course of the last three years, disruptions that are unprecedented. We've been talking about, you know, trying to share data. I remember meeting with our consortium members on our board of directors you know, probably seven or eight years ago, and, and the health plans were saying, we need more clinical data in order to calculate quality measures, and we're not getting it. The providers are saying, we're not going to give you any more than you need, and you guys keep asking for more, and it's always different. You know, come and look at our charts, and we'll monitor that. We were just like, this is insane. I mean, there clearly was, from a process perspective, a lot to be said for, let's not do it this way anymore. But there wasn't the kind of impetus that occurred or the kind of momentous change that occurred when several things happened. You know, one was we had COVID and COVID just made, you know, technology front and center when it came to telemedicine. You know, it just thrust onto people's laptops and onto their desktops, onto their digital devices. The encounter, the encounter was wrested from the exam room and placed in the patient's living room, which was an enormous change. And people, industry wonks notwithstanding, people love it. People don't want to drive across living in Boston. The traffic is enough to make you say, I never want to have health care again, even though we have some of the best healthcare institutions in the world. The other thing that happened that was huge was we saw that in addition to COVID, we had these massive industry M&A activity that we hadn't seen before. You know, when Amazon did, you know, Haven, it looked like it was kind of a bleeding edge, not ready for prime time. And that was indeed the case. But when we look at Amazon and One Medical, you know, antitrust concerns notwithstanding, when we look at what CVS is doing with a health plan, with a provider network, with a pharmaceutical network, 85% of the American population is within, you know, five minutes of a CVS pharmacy. You know, we start looking at that. And if I'm a provider or I'm a health plan, I'm going... I don't have those things. Yeah. So I think what that tells us is that the business case is becoming clearer. And without a business case, people aren't going to be, aren't going to move. Regulations notwithstanding, if the business case isn't there, they're going to hem and haw and drag their feet. But when the business case is there and we have legislation pending and we love reading the tea leaves and trying to get a sense of when the final rule or the, the proposed rule is going to hit for public comment. But nobody is saying in among the regulatory agencies that prior auth is not on the agenda. You know, it's we have the Richard Neal, you know, our congressman from the western part of the state of Massachusetts, who heads up the House Ways and Means Committee, putting forward a set of prior authorization requirements for Medicare Advantage plans as part of the Social Security Act. Forget the 21st Century Cures Act. This is going to the, you know, to the mother of all documents dating back to FDR's administration. So, you know, when we start seeing people say, you have to start doing things the right way, you have to start doing things from a standards way, or business will not be able to continue, we see that happening. I think, you know, the last thing we feel about risk is the risk of failure to implement, as I mentioned earlier, is far higher. I mean, the risk of losing patients, of losing members, enrollees who can go much more quickly to an offering 
that is connected to them, that enables them to have health care when they want it and when they need it, that informs their care with, with good information, good human contact, and avoids their having to go to these houses on the hill, these edifices where healthcare historically has been delivered and have more and more done at home. If I were a payer or provider, I'd be thinking, I got to figure out how to do this. And that's one of the reasons we have so many of them sitting at the table with us, because they know this is not, this is not a source of competitive differentiation. This is a source of survival in the market going forward. If you're, if you're a health plan or a provider and you think you can continue to do business the way you're doing it and have been doing it for the last 75 years, that's not going to be the case anymore. There's a huge technological revolution. There's a huge business revolution with these, these mergers and acquisitions. There's a regulatory move. And there's just fundamentally, this has happened everywhere else. You know, this move to API-based connectivity means that I don't have to go to a Bank of America's AP ATM, much to say to their teller, to withdraw money. I can get it wherever I want. Mm -hmm. And healthcare, I think, at the leadership level is starting to recognize. They want to preserve as much as they have of their existing business. But that little piece of, sh you know, that toehold that they have on business as usual is kind of shrinking. And they're finding themselves standing on this little piece of beach and the tide around them is not friendly. So they have to learn how to swim. They have to learn how to get in there and figure out what it means to be interoperable. The business value is there. They just are afraid of, of what that business value entails. It's different from the old enterprise model of patient capture. You know, sort of let's, let's find a way to, to circumscribe our networks and keep them as tightly sealed as possible. Now they can't do that. So it's a huge industry. It's turning around a, a, a major tanker in the harbor. But once you turn it around, it's very, stopped to, it's very hard to stop it and very hard to reverse it. So we think that the risk of failure is much higher with not getting out there, starting to do things, and educating people along the way so they start picking up more of the momentum on their own. Otherwise, it's, it's too difficult a change to undertake. Yeah, thanks, Denny. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, clearly the, the, the business case is there and it's better to not be behind the eight ball, right? When the final rule does finally drop. Jocelyn, anything to add to what uh, Danny shared? Yeah, and I, it's funny, Denny's talking, I'm like, it's like he's in my head um, saying all the things that we, that I say all the time. The words. Exactly. I, I just to double down on a couple of the things and maybe to extend them a little bit further. I think there's interesting things in the Massachusetts landscape, right? Which is there is an incredibly competitive payer market in Massachusetts. There is no predominant player that owns the vast majority of the market. I think that changes things incredibly here. And I think that that's what allows them to be in a position to be able to move. But I think that the realities that Denny is talking about is coming to everywhere, right? And we see, you know, really organizations fall into a couple different camps here, right? There's the folks that are literally thinking about doing this sort of as incremental investment, you know, sort of by project, by line of business and saying, okay, we're going to do this someday, right? But I think that the reality is, is that the market has changed. And I think that our, our colleagues at ONC and CMS really are looking for industry to lead, right? And it is up to us, I think, as the folks that want to solve these problems to create the footprint. So we talked earlier, you know, about the fact that you've got to decide as an organization whether you want to do this or not do this. Um, and I think that's where you're incurring risk. I really love the way that you're positioning risk and sort of the risk in no action versus incremental action. 
But, you know, there are different types of organizations out there in the market, and there are folks that are going to sit and let others figure it out, and they're going to let the feds drive sort of the timetable around it. And, you know, we are seeing, you know, massive changes in the market. I think what makes this different, and I, and I, and I think we, we look at this, you know, what makes this different than all the times in the past that we promised we were going to fix prior authorization? And I think it's that convergence that Denny's talking about, right, which is really we're shifting to APIs, we're shifting to more real-time interactions regardless. Fire is just the healthcare way to do that. And there are disruptors coming into our business and there's regulation coming our way. So you can either choose to participate or not participate. Sort of the folks that are still sitting there, you know, sort of in the dark with their blinders on are going to be playing catch up. And you can see, you know, that People are choosing to gain that technology. You know, I'll make a reference to the fact that we saw Availity is acquiring diameter, right? They had had a very slow CP fire program to date. They have now just literally made a decision to bolt on a massive enterprise for data integration, cleansing, and fire enablement, right, to the side of their, their traditional um, payer provider portal business. So I think we're going to continue to see things more like that. You know, I know we were laughing in the prep session, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a little befuddled at how people can think that there's a risk in moving forward now, because I think that, you know, we have gotten so much preview and signaling from ONC and CMS, the coordination and the level of coordination that they've had amongst themselves in their regulatory action and their regulatory planning through RFIs and NPRMs is unprecedented. And so I think people are either ignoring that, not paying attention, really at their own risk at this point in time. So I wholeheartedly agree with Denny at this point in time, you know, sort of not doing anything is actually going to create tremendous more risk. And inevitably, all of us that have built stuff, right, know that getting the engine started, getting the relationships in place, figuring out what you're going to do first, getting the staffing in place as Denny so eloquently laid out, always takes longer than we think it's going to. And we learn, you learn in the scenes of that process, right? We learn what's important and what's not important. We learn what trade-offs we're willing to make. We learn what business processes we have in place that don't make sense or contractual setups that we have that need to pivot and move on to the next, you know, sort of the next generation of the way that we work in our relationships with our partners. So, so getting started, it's going to, you're going to, it's going to be slower than you think. We're here to tell you it's going to be slower than you think it's going to be. Um, and, uh, and it's going to be in your best interest to do it. So. Yeah, I do want to pull a little bit on that thread that you just mentioned, Joss, on, you know, CMS and ONC, they seem to be more coordinated, right, in their rulemaking. And I think until uh, 2020, you know, that's when we really saw them come out with the rules together. So, Denny, I'm curious, um, just your thoughts on that real quick on, you know, do you think the rules have gotten stronger over the past couple of years just because of that coordination? And just, just your thoughts on that. I think they have. We know Mickey Tripathi well. He's a he's a Mass native. Used to manage the Massachusetts eHealth Collaborative, on whose board we sat, and we helped to create that organization. Mickey knows the provider side of the business extremely well, and he understands APIs. He knows technologies, but he also knows moving providers to interoperability is an entirely different exercise than moving payers to interoperability. He also knows that there are you know, as we do, there are deep cultural shifts that have to happen. And the whole idea of sharing data in the provider industry, which was kind of built, and I'm sure David Brailer and others, previous heads of the ONC, would probably think they could have done things better if they knew then what they know now. But all of us wish that on many occasions. 
But the fact that we created these enterprise level electronic medical records was in some ways sort of feudalizing health data. You know, it was putting health data into enterprises, whether large and small, and creating incentives, however perverse they were, for these organizations to hold on to that data really tightly. We also did not allow healthcare organizations on both the payer and the provider side to develop the kind of agility that, that's required to like move projects, decide this one's not working, drop that, move on to the next one. You know, the cycle of information technology change in health plans and providers is an annual process. It's supposed to be like almost a biweekly process, practically. You know, you have to make choices quickly about what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. And you have to develop that kind of agility. And that takes a different level of investment. But I think with respect to ONC and CMS, they kind of came at this at opposite sides when the first rule was published from CMS about prior auth and about sort of access to information. But it was very groundbreaking because what it did, which brought the, the agencies together, was it put the patient squarely in the middle. Rather than saying, oh, I'm so sick of you payers and providers arguing about one just doesn't pay and the other spends too much and what? There's no meeting in the middle, and it's the same argument every year. And then we get these EMRs coming in and saying, patients don't need to know their health data. They, we have systems to take care of that. And that kind of got turned on its head when CMS came out with the interoperability rule. And rather than saying, payers and providers start getting along, they said, you've forgotten about somebody. You've forgotten about the patient, the consumer, the member, the person, the individual. There are 330 plus million of them. And if you don't get them involved, if you don't get that crowd involved in this problem, it's never going to get solved. So the whole idea of interoperability is to make this a three-legged stool rather than this tottery two-legged stool that's always falling over because it can't support itself by putting the patient next to and with the payer, the health insurance plan, and the provider, the hospital and doctor, and saying, I'm a part of this information exchange. As a matter of fact, I'm the center of it because I'm the only one who can tell you what it is that I want, what I need, and I'm the one who makes those choices. So give me the information I need to make choices. So when Seema Verma and the prior administration came out with the original rule, as confrontational and as blunt as it was, it basically kind of flipped everybody, you know, the sort of status quo on its head and said, you've forgotten about the patient the member, the consumer. And that got everybody thinking, well, we don't want to sound like we don't like patients or members or consumers. We want to, we don't, we want to be customer friendly. Well, one of the ways you can do that is to reduce the burden of this terrible thing called prior auth. So the agencies are coming together because they know from the 21st Century Cures Act, which was overwhelmingly passed bipartisanly, that they need to get this show on the road. And they're starting to align. They have different constituents. They have some things that don't quite fit. And we, you know, Dave Delano and my colleagues and I and, and some of our members, we ask, what is that and why is that there? Well, it's an artifact of the way they've worked historically. They have to build bridges with their existing constituents before they throw a whole new, you know, obstacle in their way. But, you know, I think we're seeing a level of collaboration or at least coordination between the agencies that are responsible for the healthcare industry when it comes to health data at a much higher level than we've seen in the past. And I think the introduction of the consumer to that has been a huge part of that. Yeah, Everybody okay. hates the status quo and they want it to change. Absolutely. So I want to stay on that theme of kind of this 
future vision of, of healthcare, especially with the patient, right, and that, that consumer focus. So um, it sounds like, you know, you agree, I think, that this is definitely a good thing. But curious what kind of your ideal state would look like in your view. You know, how can health IT support us to get there, right, to have that more consumer patient focus? Well, I think what we believe is that you need to have it's one thing to talk about interoperability initiatives, but you need to have patient advocates. And and I don't mean patient advocates in the rah-rah, let the data be free type of thing, but people who have responsibility for helping patients, whether they're caregivers at home, whether they're caregivers in the community, there need to be people who represent patients at the table. Because when you're in the health plan business or you're in the healthcare delivery business, you lose sight of that. You're not dealing with patients all the time. You're dealing with administration. You're dealing with regulations. You're dealing with compliance. You're dealing with, with all sorts of changes that can obscure your view of the patient or the member. And so we think that you know part of what makes this possible is that these organizations know that they need to pay attention to their members. I think the equity movement is huge. We've heard it referred to as burden, you know, we've heard it referred to as DEI, as social determinants of health, you know, sort of the data first approach, which is, you know, people are taking a step back from that saying, what is it that we're actually trying to measure and what constitutes a good result? You know, we don't really know that we need to do that first. But I think people recognize that and we're confident about that, that there are ways that organizations are going to think about, and we've recommended this, this to them, is start small. Do what we do. You know, instead of saying we're going to set up a great big equity initiative, we're going to appoint a senior vice president of equity who has no money, no staff, maybe a nominal staff, is not a line executive, but a staff executive in an organization. And we've seen this happen in healthcare before. Instead of doing that, or along with doing that, figure out an equity initiative that you can get done in the next 90 days. Instead of trying to envision the perfect equity solution, which is impossible to envision because everyone is different, start with something that supports the disadvantaged members of your own community. We work with Allown Institute to use their data in our analytics service to provide health systems and healthcare providers. And how, how much civic engagement do they have? How well does their employee profile reflect the people in their community? How much low-value care are they doing relative to what's really helpful? And the idea is get smaller before you get bigger. You know, instead of trumpeting an equity initiative, try something out. Health plans and providers are having an enormously challenging time just exchanging race and ethnicity data. I mean, it's, it's a huge challenge, but we can do that. We can start there and start to begin to carve out pieces that provide foundation, a baseline for equity-related efforts. We could do the same thing with information sharing. We have some time, not a lot. We'll see what comes out, out after the public comment period when the rule, the notice of proposed rulemaking comes out. They're not going to give you forever, but they're going to give you some time. But my advice and our advice to our, our member organizations and others is pick an initiative that you can actually get into, you can resolve, and you can make recommendations on the order of two or three months. Don't make it into something. This is, you know, like a Stalin-like five-year plan because everything breaks before you get there. And if we can start that way, I think that's where we see health plans and providers being able to overcome some of the challenges, Pooja, that you, you, know, you, you recognize and, and presented. 
all big problems, humans can only solve them one step at a time. I mean, they really can. So, you know, let's just get started. Let's figure out to do something simple that organizations aren't threatened by and build from there. These tensions exist between organizations regardless, but we can at least do something that everyone agrees is the right thing, make progress, report, build momentum, get people less uncomfortable with the whole notion and move forward. Yeah, and it sounds like, I mean, what you've built with, you know, this automation advisory group, kind of having folks across the stakeholder industry, right? I mean, uh, they're, they're all coming together to kind of solve these these bigger industry challenges. I'm sure there's some, you know, adversarial uh, <laughs> things that happen, but, you know, it sounds like at least from your perspective, you're starting to see some of that shift, right, of, of folks coming together. Um, Joss, I'm curious, uh, before we close out, I know we're coming up on time, you know, are you kind of seeing the same thing with your work in DaVinci? You know, you, you work with a lot of folks, too, that are kind of, you know, sometimes they're, like Denny mentioned earlier, right, like sitting across the table from each other, but, you know, we're expecting everyone to kind of sit down together. Just curious your thoughts on on that piece. I think it really echoes back and and I think you can hear Denny talking about it sort of in this sort of incrementalism sort of approach, right? Getting started approach. I think that when you have people that are willing to focus on how do I get proof points? How do I show the ROI, right? Of these investments and the reusability of these investments. I think it really changes the conversation. I mean, we all know that we live in a world where there is, you know, tension and friction between payers and providers in the market, right? But I think that when we get people sitting down at a table and we get to see communities actually saying, what are our common problems? Where are where is the common waste that we have? Where are we really not advocating or fixing problems for our patients slash members here? I think that that's where you really reframe sort of these legacy tensions. And again, sort of the pressure on business model and the shifts on business model, I think has allowed payers and providers on both sides to get up sit down in other seats at the table and see other perspectives on sort of how we've gotten here and why we've gotten here, right? And, you know, just sort of echo the beginning conversation that Denny had, which is, you know, there's many ideas about how we sort of broad-based just get rid of prior authorization or ideas of how we have programs to remove it. They all have sort of for, you know, a number of different reasons that we've all unpacked over the years of working on challenges like this, flaws in them, right? So, you know, what is it that we can do to put foundational tools in place so that people can spend the time on actual patient care. And I think if you center people and what we get to see in the communities that are like Denny's out there that are making progress, that's the focus that people have taken is a problem solving, industry first, patient first approach to really fixing these problems. And again, the technology is literally informing and helping this happen. It really is about where is the pain? Where's the business value? Where's the value for the patient, right? to actually fix these problems. And when those are aligned, that other stuff doesn't disappear, but it's at least everybody's allowed to put it in their backpack as opposed to their steamer trunk, right? To drag it around in their conversations. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, I think we could probably spend all day chatting. <laughs> we can. Yeah, we've proven that. <laughs> but I'm getting the red flag. Uh, so, um, so as we close out, Denny, I just wanted to see if there's any kind of final message or call to action that you want to make sure, you know, after someone's listened to this episode, anything they can be doing from your perspective. Get outside of your organization, meet with your business partners and competitors and recognize with them that we're talking about infrastructure. 
We're not talking about sources of competitive differentiation. We're talking about laying the railroad tracks or the, the, the highway system or some other form of infrastructure, the power grid. We're, we're building something that will make it possible for us all to live better and do business better and care for patients better than we've, did, we've done before. But we can't figure it out on our own. So let's come together, however small. You know, in some markets, as Janice pointed out, Massachusetts, we have a history of bringing a lot of people together. And MHDC has been at the center of that. That didn't happen overnight. But in other states, in other regions, you don't have to bring everybody together. You can bring a few people together. And if you start working on things and you start winning, however small, people will start coming to you because you've done something that they haven't done. And I think that is where people need to get off the idea that they're compromising business value or competitive advantage. This is about building a new information infrastructure for healthcare, and it's never been cheaper to do. I mean, this was unthinkable 20 years ago. It's something to do. So I would recommend get started, like George Carlin said, you know, how did I get started? I got started. Get started on your on the job. Bring people into the room so you're not just focusing on your own organization. Bring competitors and others into the room. Don't forget the patient. Don't forget the patient, you know, bring them into the room in some capacity and start working on things that are small. Get your feet wet. That would be our recommendation. And we're always happy to help. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> Joss, any final words before we close out? I, I mean, I think the shout out I would do to the folks that are listening is if you're an organization that is making progress like Dinny, um, we'd love to hear about it. We'd love to help lift you up and build some awareness because um, I, I have repeated since Denny first said it to me that we are an industry of followers over and over and over again because it's very compelling. And, and I do think that if you can be that shining example, that thing that somebody can point to inside their own organization to get the green light, to get the resources, it's incredibly important that we really build awareness of that. So we'd love to love to hear from you. Great. Thank you. Well, Denny, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Jocelyn, as always, it's, it's so fun to host with you. I know both of you are out in Massachusetts doing great things, and it's nice to see kind of this organization, right, is, is a, kind of a, you know, a, a beacon right out there to say, okay, this is how we do it, and this is how we're going to move things forward. So it'll be great to see over the next two years, uh, you know, what, what you guys can accomplish. So um, thanks again, and I want to thank, thank our audience for tuning in. Um, just a friendly reminder to our any new listeners, um, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use to pick up your podcast, including uh, the Healthcare Now Radio and the podcast channel. Um, we do also post these videos on our YouTube channel, so um, feel free to go out there if you'd like to see us live as opposed to just listening to us. Um, and don't forget, uh, Health IT is a dish best served hot. So thank you all for listening. Thank you, Denny uh, and Jocelyn, for your insights today. Thank you, Pooja. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thanks, folks. Is it a challenge to stay on top of interoperability regulations and the flurry of activity with fire accelerators? Email us at interopoutlook at POCP.com to learn more about our new interoperability outlook subscription monitoring service. 